again. Thanks for joining me on the 71st episode of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, Associate Editor of Architecture at Golf Digest, and my guest today is Chris Wilzinski. One of the topics that garners a lot of attention on this podcast is how the field of golf course design changes through time. It changes through artistic evolutions and expressions in response to the way tastes and desires of golfers develop, through advancements in agronomy, technology, and construction, the expansion of the game into previously unaccessible environments, and in the operational practices of designers and design firms. This last facet looms large in the experience of my guest. The world of golf course design that Chris Wilzinski came into in the 1990s bears little resemblance to the one he inhabits today. A brief refresher. In the late 1980s and 90s, golf construction was in full frenzy, with 200, sometimes 300 or more courses opening in the United States per year. It was the era of golf and real estate conjugation, of developmental wildcatting, and the large architectural firms of Jack Nicklaus, Tom Fazio, Greg Norman, Reese Jones, Robert Shen Jones, and many others were cashing in, building 5, 10, or 15 projects at a time. One of the busiest companies by the late 90s was that of Arthur Hills, whom Wilsinski joined as a design associate in 1997. For years, as he rose up through the firm in the early 2000s, Wilsinski's feet didn't touch the ground as he oversaw numerous new-build design projects across the country while co-designing a slew of impressive courses like Ironbridge in Colorado and Wolf Dancer in Texas. Of course, that planet is nothing like the one we live on today. It all came to a slow, then screeching halt in 2008 after the global financial collapse crippled the industry. Just a short time later, Wilsinski left Hills and started his own business. For him, like almost everyone else in design, it's been a tale of two worlds, as his focus has shifted from large integrated development projects with resort and real estate clients to club renovations and master plans. If Wilsinski had come into golf course architecture in the last 15 years, he'd likely have spent his time up to now on machinery, working the construction side, and shaping features for other designers. His work now consists of the same type of projects as his peers, including renovating courses like Wanaka Country Club near Buffalo, Donald Ross's Chautauqua Golf Club, also in New York, Warwick Hills in Grand Blanc, Michigan, and Blythefield Country Club, a Langford and Moreau course in Belmont, Michigan. But his experience and expertise working in the 90s and early 2000s with Hills also sets him apart, to the point that he's in the small class of architects who earn rare new build work, most recently at Esplanade at Azario, a development near Sarasota, Florida, that opened earlier in 2020. Chris and I get into all of this, and also what it takes to get a job in this market, the balance between renovation and historical restoration, the dynamics of working within the firm of Arthur Hills, and the design and construction class he teaches at Michigan State. Chris is a great speaker, a very forthcoming and earnest person, and is as knowledgeable about golf course architecture as anyone working today. I know you'll enjoy this discussion. Here's Chris Wilzinski. It's like one of those things I've, I've seen it, you know, read it so many times over the years. And then when all of a sudden it's time to say it, I'm like, well, how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> You're not the first. Right. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. 
So, so what is that? A, is that a Polish name? Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my grandfather was Polish. Um, you know, and I got the, the ski name, but I'm more of other things than Polish, but it is Polish. Uh-huh. Is your family from Michigan? Is that where your roots are? Yeah. Yeah. Southeast Michigan. My mom, my mom's maiden name was Ford and they, you know, they were on the East coast and then migrated and they were farmers. My dad's family were farmers as well, but yeah, they all kind of lived in Southeast Michigan, the Toledo area. And, um, yeah, and I've, and I've lived here in this area my whole life. Any relation to the other, uh, famous Fords of Michigan? Uh, I, you know, my family has looked back into that. I don't know if there is a direct connection or not. Um, I don't think that there is, but, uh, I'm not hundred percent positive. I wish there was, yeah. <laughs> I wish, uh, I wish my, well, my last name would be a lot easier too, if it was just Ford. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They, they, you'd probably have discovered that if there was a link by now. Yeah. Probably Somebody would have. Now. Yeah. <laughs> digging into that family. Yeah. So uh, you're a Michigan guy. Uh, you went to Michigan State. And I find it interesting. I think maybe we'll start off by talking about the, the class you teach in the fall. Sure. Uh, golf course design and construction at Michigan State. How did that come about? Uh, well, it started, this is my fourth year teaching. And, uh, you know, I've been an acquaintance or friendly with the um, both the landscape architecture program as well as the turf grass science program at Michigan State ever since I graduated from college. Uh, one of the professors on the turf grass program is um, Dr. Trey Rogers, and he 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 runs the two-year turf grass program. And um, anyway, so like I said, I've been friendly with him and over all these years. And the person that taught the class prior to me was Bruce Matthews. Uh, Bruce is a golf course architect from Michigan, and his uncle is it his uncle or grandpa i can't remember the connection always mm-hmm. i think jerry matthews is his uncle and bruce matthews jerry's dad was his grandpa i think right so anyways uh bruce taught the class for 10 years and decided to step down and when it came time to find a replacement bruce recommended me and then so did dr rogers so they asked and i said sure uh the, the class has been taught for 30 years um bruce taught the class and then i guess jerry matthews uh taught the class before him and then bill newcomb another michigan golf course architect uh taught the class uh, before the matthews did so the class has been around for a while it's taught to like i said just well there's a couple four-year students in my class too but it's primarily two-year students that are studying turf grass science agronomy and uh yeah, like I said, they asked me to do it, and I, I thought it was a cool opportunity. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I thought to myself that I always wanted to teach. I have interest in teaching. Uh, you know, part of my job as a golf course architect is, like, we're always teaching, you know, contractors and other people about what we want as far as our vision. So teaching kind of comes inherently to try to describe something to somebody to me. Um, but, yeah, it's been fun. It's been a fun class. Uh, every year, the size of the class is a little different as far as number of students. The most I ever had was, I think, 24 or 25 students one year. This year, I have 13 students. Uh, the class is called Golf Course Design and Construction. And really up to me teaching the class, uh, the students were taught how to do a rooting plan and how to, how to design a nine-hole golf course. And they were taught about the history of golf and architecture and uh, construction techniques and things like that. Um, But the very first class that I had four years ago, I said to the students, I said, you're probably not going to have many opportunities throughout your career to design a new golf course. Maybe, but probably not. 
And I said, but what I think is probably more valuable is if I was to teach you how to look at an existing golf course, because you're going to be super intense someday. If you could, if I could get you to critically look at an existing golf course, golf hole, and assess improvements, whether it's a removal of a tree or a tree addition or bunker, tee, et cetera. If I could teach you how to look at those things critically, and then if I could teach you how to communicate these needs or these improvements to your owner, and then understand what the cost would be to do these things and, and the time or process to do them, I felt like I could make you more valuable as a superintendent. And so I asked them to vote, you know, do you want to do the nine hole new golf course or do the renovation master plan? And they all unanimously said, let's do the master plan renovation. And so that's what I've taught the last four years is, is that exact thing. We've used uh, different golf courses around the Lansing area to do the master plan. Uh, up to this year, because this year we're all online 100% uh, through Michigan State, but up to this year, I would spend three or four of the classes, there's 12 classes total, I would spend that out on the golf course, teaching them about master planning and how to look at a golf course. And so we're not allowed to do that this year. We can do it kind of independently, but no formal class. Um, so this year's class, we're still doing the same thing, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes in the end, but I feel like there's a little bit of a disadvantage because uh, I've had, uh, for example, there's a student uh, I had two years ago that's at Blyfield Country Club. He's an assistant there right now. We're doing the renovation work there. He came up to me the other day and said, you know, I totally get it now as far as the class and what you're trying to teach us. He's like, it was really hard to do, to understand in class because you couldn't actually see it or you couldn't feel it as far as what you're talking about. But he's like, I totally get it now. So with most people, you know, seeing is believing and so I'm kind of at a disadvantage this year because I'm not able to take the students out on the golf course and talk about these things and um, talk about how we go about that process. Uh, nonetheless, though, trying to make the best of it and, you know, do as much as we can on Zoom. And uh, But it's definitely a new new year, a new era as far as teaching and how I communicate with the students. And so far, it's, yeah. it's good. We're off, we're, we've had our second class this year and um i'm expecting everything to go fine but it's definitely uh different yeah that's interesting to hear you say that because even a college program like yours a specialized program you might have to chalk this up to a lost year whether you're a, a third grader or a seventh grader or a ninth grader or a twelfth grader or a in a golf course and construction plan learning in 2020 has been a challenge and i think everybody just you know who's under the age or in any kind of school at all it's just going to have this year kind of erased, you know, it's, it's like partial learning half, half educated in 2020, I guess everybody's in the same boat, but, but that's a real, that is a real drawback. And especially what, what you're doing and what you're talking about, which is very smart, by the way, to have these kids focus on master plans and renovations rather than, you know, the, the dream job of creating a, a brand new course. But, sure, you know, it's, sure. uh, it, it's for a hands-on course like that. Yeah. It's going to be a setback for them. Yeah, it is. And then like, you know, like we just said, kind of a lost year. I mean, I have, I have two, you know, two kids that are in school. One's a senior in high school and one's in uh, seventh grade. And my senior is doing good. I mean, he's pretty independent. Um, but, you know, the kids in middle school, they still need a lot of support and hands-on. And um, my my son is struggling. My youngest is struggling with it at times because he, he really needs, like, the, I mean, they're doing the Zoom with teachers and all that kind of stuff. But it's not for everybody, you know, this process. And so some kids are going to, do better than others and um he'll make it through it but i think what you just said is a kind of a lost year is probably true yeah it's and even as a parent i think what we're all going through is realizing 
how important classroom is. I, we just took it for granted. It's been so long since we've been in classrooms, especially at you know at the uh, high school or, or middle school or elementary level. Seeing right. the kids try to learn outside of a classroom without the teacher in front of them, without their their uh, their classmates around them, you you really realize how valuable that setting is and how how important it is to the whole learning right. process to to be surrounded in a in a you know a pure learning environment and not your living room or your kitchen or your your desk in your bedroom. Right, right. No, that's abs- that's absolutely right. I mean, and it's and it's hard for the parents too because. You know, there's there's um, there's got to be parents that are working full time that can hardly dedicate any time to that. Some that are probably not even in the house. Thank God we're both in the house when you know I'm around and my wife is here. But um, it's uh, it's a lot of extra work for you know, parents and, and for everybody. Absolutely. So in your class, do you feel like the kids can can take a lot? Have taken a lot out of out of what you've been teaching them? Not this year, but in previous years, especially when you get them out in the field. Is that a how much can you teach them? I guess is what I'm wondering in a in a in a college environment versus being out on the job and kind of living that experience. You mentioned the the student who works at Blythe Field now, like that that working experience really brought him around. But just I'm curious in a sort of in a educational academic background, how much can you really teach somebody about designing and renovating golf courses? Yeah, it's it's probably like how much can you really teach them? If you said you know 100 percent was knowing everything i'd probably say they walk out with you know maybe 30 or 40 percent of the knowledge or the information and then the rest is learn on site doing uh it, it's just hard to i guess share it, it's hard here's the first hard part so i you know i'm trained and it took a long time it took 30 years to train me and my eye to where it is today so my eye is trained to pick up these things and see things and so I'm asking students to have that same eye, which they don't, you know, some may have a better eye than others. Uh, uh, some are going to see some of the things I see, but some probably aren't going to see it at all just because they're, they're not visual like that. So I got to teach that part. I got to teach them how to stand there or look at, you know, a topography map or look at a Google earth map and, and try to understand and visualize these things. And that's hard. That's, that's always been the hardest thing about, what we do as architects is trying to explain our vision to somebody because most people, when they look at a piece of paper, they can't see it. They can't visualize it. So that part is hard and you'll never get that in without just a lot of experience and, and just practicing that. Uh, the part that's probably a little bit easier is maybe teaching them about construction techniques and how you actually build things and what things cost and how to quantify those things. Um, but it's a lot easier if we can do it out in the field and I could show them firsthand, like that student that, that's at Blyfield now or the, the working professional at Blyfield now, you know, once he saw it, he totally understood what it, what it, you know, how it all comes together. So um, it's not a perfect, perfect science. You know, it's not a perfect process. I just try to give them some basic insight so that they can be better equipped. And I, I told them jokingly, you know, each year I tell them, it's like, I don't want to teach you more than I know because I still want you guys to call me when you need, uh, when you need help, you know, at some point in your career, when you're going through a renovation or, or whatever it would be. But the whole point is just to make them stronger professionals. Um, and then the, the other thing I talk about a lot with them is speaking, like being able to get up in front of your owner. And so we, so we do a lot of these discussions and presentations in class this year on zoom, but I really want them to be confident to talk about their ideas and, um, as a as a professional, so they can go to the owner or to the uh, club or whoever it would be, and and 
propose these ideas and propose ways to improve their golf course. And as you know, you know, a big part of uh, any of that kind of stuff is, is the sale of it, you know, selling somebody something and getting them to believe it and see it. And so that's all important as well. But, you know, I don't, I don't know at the end of the day when classes are done each year, you know, how many people really totally get it and until they actually see it, you know, firsthand and experience it. Um, it's just hard to explain it, you know, with pictures because pictures never do justice of anything. Like you can't see, you know, if it's in dirt, you can't see anything, you know, cause there's no contrast. And then even when there's grass, you still don't see the, you know, the detail of it. Um, so it, it's hard to, it's hard. <laughs> you mentioned something I've been thinking about a lot lately and that's selling in your experience, you know, you came up with, with Art Hills and Steve Forrest and that organization. So they did most of the pitching, but now that you're on your own in your experience, how much of, of you getting a job getting across the, the finish line and, and starting the work is, is you selling yourself or your vision or how much do you, uh, do you go into situations where uh, a club or a client is really kind of already made up their mind because of, you know, somebody else's name or, or some other sort of like image that they're trying to attach themselves to? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, dating back to the Arthur Hills time, I, certainly at first I didn't do any sales, but once I became a partner, uh, I was responsible for sales and, um, you know, finding work and tracking down leads and, and getting work. Um, art, ta- art taught me a lot about that. That that was probably art's strength. I mean, he was a good designer. Um, you know, he had some great projects that he worked on, but it, when I look back, I think that was probably his best strength was that he was able to sell. He was able to go in and meet with somebody. He could be very charming and um, he just knew how to sell. And he was good at that. So he taught me a lot about that process. So I certainly had some experience, but until you do it on your own and it's your own company, you know, I thought that I kind of had it understood when I was doing sales for him, but until you have your own company, it's a different story. Um, I'd say like there was a famous architect named Albert Kahn who designed buildings in the Detroit area. Absolutely. He did a lot of beautiful, beautiful clubhouses and mm-hmm. historic buildings in downtown Detroit. And there was a quote that I read from him once saying that architecture is 80% business and 20% design. And I'd probably say that's true. Um, you know, the fun part is the design, but if we don't get the work and service the work and uh, you know, you don't have jobs. So there's a lot of effort that goes into to new work and finding new work and tracking that down um, once, once there's an opportunity and in that cycle, that sales cycle, my wife, um, my, of, of five years, second wife, it's just a maze of how long some of these things take from the, the time you get your initial lead to the point that there's a sit, you know, a sale or a closed contract that you're moving forward. Like, for example, I started talking to the country club of Lansing, which is in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, I started talking to them last fall, met with them, had a formal interview in the spring. Uh, that this was before the kind of the COVID really broke out, but actually the zoom was the, the interview was on zoom. And then uh, this coming week on Wednesday, I'm taking them to Blyfield country club. There's eight people from the country club of Lansing coming over to see the work that they're doing there. And I still don't have a closed you know, sale or contract. Um, and it's a competitive deal there. There's three other architects they're talking to as well. So it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of uh, patience. Um, and then you have to continue to think about ways to stay in front of these people and, uh, you know, get them to consider you or c- keep thinking about you. Um, 
And that's the thing that I think Art taught me the most is he was really good with follow-up letters, inviting people to come see his work. Uh, and I try to do as much as that as I can because that that's the easiest way to sell is to have other people see my work and have other people talk about my work versus me having to do it. Um, so, you know, I guess to answer your question, sales is a huge part of, of what I do. And, um, and it's something that I, I enjoy doing it because to me, like getting a sale is just as much fun as, you know, sitting down and sketching a, a new golf hole in some regards is because it's like such an awesome experience to go through that and to know that you've, you know, A, it's your livelihood, but just the feeling of making a sale and closing a sale is, is pretty awesome. Um, and, and in today's world, uh, like with what I do, you know, we have the opportunity to use social media and for marketing and things like this. And uh, I don't do, I don't pay for a lot of marketing and, and sales and things like that. Most of it's word of mouth and more, most of it's just, you know, hoping to do good work and that kind of takes care of itself and people reference you or call you because of that. And, um, but it's something I'm always working on and always thinking about. And you have to fill that, fill that sales funnel or that funnel of leads because you know that you know if you have a hundred leads, you're probably only going to get you know a handful of those uh, every time. So you got to continue to fill that pipeline and continue to work on those projects. And because um, because a lot of these projects that we're talking to now maybe work you know next year or the following year after that, just because of the of the life cycle of most of this work. So just to use Country Club of Lansing as an example, what do you think they or a club like them? What will make go into them making a decision about who they hire is it is it does it ultimately come down to relationships or is it will it come down to your your vision of of that product and and how that relates to what they're asking for you to do do you differentiate yourself personally or through your work and and what are they going to how are they going to like make that ultimate decision yeah that's a great question um Short answer, I'm not 100% positive. Right, you never know. So, yeah. Maybe you never uh, find out. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I do know, Derek, is that I, I pursue every so often RFPs, requests for proposals, where there's you know multiple architects that would submit a, a proposal. I have very, uh, I don't know what the right word was, not, not a very good track record with those for whatever reason. Those tend to be based upon money, you know, whatever the, the dollar amount is, and that's typically what they are, because a lot of times RFPs are, are issued by municipalities, rarely ever by private or public entities. Um, but I just have not done very well with those. And I think what, what for me, what differentiates me is, is it comes down to that relationship. It comes down to getting in front of them, you know, getting them to like you. And, and that's it. At the end of the day, like everybody wants to work with somebody they like, somebody they trust. So it's getting them to like you. It's getting them to trust you. And then it's just really focusing on the work that we've done, the body of work, the type of work we've done, and then getting that to sell sell for us. Um, whether that's through pictures or having past clients call prospective clients and talk to them about you know my services or what I do, showing them the work firsthand. Um, but to me, it's it's a it's such a relationship business, and they have to be comfortable with me. And um, so I really work hard on that, developing that relationship. And if I don't have a good opportunity to develop the relationship, it's probably not going to be a good fit or probably not going to go anywhere. And then if I am meeting with somebody and it, it doesn't feel right, it's probably not a good fit for me uh, anyways. And so that's kind of where I am at my career is, you know, I got a one 
really enjoy the people I'm working with and, and whether it's a private club or a public golf course or whatever it would be. And, um, and to me, it just starts with the relationship and that, that's really, really what I focus on. Mm -hmm. The reason I think the reason I asked about that determining factor, whatever a club is looking for and, and with every club, it's going to be something different. And, and again, you may not even know, they may not even know what exactly they're looking for, but you've been involved in a couple uh, recent and current, I guess, renovation or restoration projects. One was Chautauqua in New York, which is a Donald Ross course. Uh, Blythefield, which we mentioned now, is in Michigan in Grand Rapids area. And that's a Langford, Bill Langford golf course. Right. Does your ability to interpret or understand that particular architect's design style or methodology or just having historical familiarity to those projects and that style of design does that do you think that plays a major factor in in who gets jobs because like going all the way back to the class you teach you're teaching this this next generation of kids how to do master plans that's where the work's going to be that's where it's been for the last at least decade that's what you're doing right. now you used to you know spend probably most of your time building brand new courses with with Arthur right. Hills and now now you're you're doing master plans for for clubs and it's a very competitive field there's a, a lot of people who need to find work this way and some people have kind of made uh, a name for themselves as being specialists in a certain uh, era of design or a, even a certain uh, architect from the past so my so that's my question is is do you feel like you need to specialize or have a special understanding of Donald Ross or Bill Langford to, to get jobs, uh, like the ones you're, you're, you're trying to get? Um, good question. So like the Chautauqua project, which is, there's 36 holes there. The original 18 was a Ross course. And then there was a new 18 that was added in the eighties. Um, I got that job through the superintendent from Wanaka country club in Buffalo. You know, I've been working at Wanaka for about 10 years and the superintendent at Wanaka was friends with the superintendent at Chautauqua and he recommended me. So it had nothing to do with like my ability to interpret or work on Ross projects. To be honest, that, that Chautauqua project was the first like full master plan that I completed at a Ross course. I've worked on other Ross courses before, but never had the opportunity to kind of come up with a new vision. Um, so it didn't really matter much there at, a, at, at Blyfield, um, I had, again, never worked on a Langford Moreau project. The superintendent from Egypt Valley Country Club, which is a country club in Grand Rapids, recommended me to the superintendent at Blyfield. So then there it was, again, back to the word of mouth and the just relationships. So as far as being, a, you know, specializing, you know, I've always wondered about that or kind of was intrigued by, you know, the guys that, you know, like Ron Pritchard or Ron Force, the guys that do a lot of Ross type of work. And I know like my good friend, past partner, Drew, Drew Rogers, he does a lot of work with Colt and Allison or has tried to do a lot of work with Colt and Allison. Um, I guess I've never, I've never felt that I wanted to specialize in one type of architect's work or not. Um, in, in both of those projects at Blyfield and Chautauqua, the goal was not to restore exactly what was there. Um, at Chautauqua, we were trying to bring back some old holes that had been lost when the new 18 was created, but it wasn't a true restoration. And so I think like what I, I, I feel like after those two projects, what I've come to specialize in, if you, if you want to call it that is, is one, like 
understanding what the architect's original vision was and what their design principles were, but trying to marry that with like today's world and what the committee and what my owner, what their needs are and what their wants are. Um, and we talked about restoration you know, at both golf courses and neither club was interested in like restoring it back to the, what it was originally, but they were interested in bringing back the elements of it. They were interested in maintaining that name and that connection with those past architects, but it wasn't about restoring it. So I guess like, again, my specialty I feel is that I can take those plans, take those original visions that the architects had, and again, marry it with today's needs and, and what the owner wants. And at the end of the day, like I'm still working for somebody in each one of these projects, they're still in charge of what the mission is and what they want for a final product. You know, it's my goal to help them through the process, but I'm still creating it for them and what, what, what their needs are for today. Um, and that's where I feel like I've, you know, been able to, I guess, make the most progress is just, again, taking, taking that and trying to marry it with what, what's there today and, and what the vision is of, of my current client. Um, yeah. And it seems, it seems like that has been a very intelligent approach for you because you just, this is the couple of the courses we just mentioned, uh, you got those off referrals from past clients. So if you can make a membership happy and you can make those greens committees happy, uh, they might be a lot more willing to pick up the phone and place a phone call for you and, and, uh, kind of kick right. that, kick that, uh, forward. Um, right. This is an architecture podcast though. So I want, I do want to talk about Langford a little bit, Langford and Moreau. What did you, what did you see, to see or discover at Blythefield that, that might've surprised you or, uh, is, is the product there, you know, right now, over the last four or five years, Langford's become kind of, kind of like this, a hot trendy architect to study, you know, because some of their, their shaping was, was so distinctive and, um, right. just the way they, they'd build huge shoulders and you'd have, uh, uh, such separation between levels and platforms. You'd have a green that drops off and, uh, it looks very dramatic. It looks very pre, obviously, you know, Pete Dye touches on Rainer, but it's, it's kind of angular. And that's what right. we've come to think of as Langford in in, uh, in our bubble world, uh, whether it's true or not, I you know everywhere probably not. But at Blythefield, what what's distinctive about the architecture there, and what have you, what are you doing with that golf course? Uh, that's a great question, and that's the other part about working on old golf courses, and that I find very interesting, is because I think there's a you know maybe part of the golf architecture world that thinks that, um, you know, every architect, every great architect was there all the time on the property and spent a lot of time creating that, that, that golf course and that, that overall plan. Uh, the reality was, you know, if you think back to the 1920s or early 1900s, when some of these classic courses were built, it was nearly impossible for the architect to, to be on property a lot because of the travel restrictions. You know, it was either train or I don't know what the other options even were at that point, maybe a car, maybe horse and buggy or something. But it, it no doubt took days, you know, for people to get, you know, like right now it takes me two hours to get from my house to, to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Well, back in 1920, it probably took like a day to get there. And then, you know, several days to go to another state further away. So my point is the architects were not there a lot. They were, they were relying on associates on the ground to do the work. And so that's why I think you see such variety or differences in architecture. You know, Donald Ross is a perfect example. There's you know, countless Donald Ross golf courses throughout Michigan, uh, you know, especially in the, in the Detroit area. And there's, 
you know, you can see all different types of things. And part of it's the evolution of the, of the property. Part of it's, you know, different architects have tinkered with it over time. And I don't really see, you know, any strong connection, you know, a lot of times from one Ross course to the next, as far as the look and the shaping and the characteristics of it. The thing that I think is always a commonality would be the rooting, the way the holes lie in the, on the ground and in the angles that they tried to set up and where they position bunkers to set up those angles. But as far as shaping and bunker styles and things like that, I see all kinds of different stuff out there. Um, at Blyfield, and I should have done this a long time ago, but this this summer I went to uh, Wisconsin to see Lawsonia uh, links. I also played another golf course that was a Lankford Monroe course called West Bend. It's in West Bend, Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. Lankford Monroe did the original he did nine, the nine holes, holes there. Yeah. Yeah, and then somebody else. So I played that Gil. first. Yep. And then we, and then we played, um, Lassoni. I played it twice, uh, Saturday, uh, Friday and a Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. I can't remember. Um, I thought they were like amazing. Like I was just blown away. Um, for people that have not been to West Bend, I highly recommend going to West Bend and playing that front nine. Um, I think it's just as good as Lassoni, if not a little bit better in some parts, the back nine, you know, is the breaker because the back nine is not as good. So you can't say it's like a you know great 18 hole golf course. It's pretty good, but the front nine, I, I was just blown away. Um, I was blown away by La Sonia as well. Like you just said, with the, just the steep forms, you know, Langford Moreau were one of the first architects or the first, I guess, to start using that steam shovel, start moving soil. Prior to that, it was, you know, that horse and plow thing and just very rudimentary methods. And that's why there wasn't a lot of earth moving taking place well these guys you know start using the steam shovel and start creating these bold you know super steep forms uh at lawsonia and west bend you know you got bunker faces that are you know probably one to one slopes like which is nearly vertical probably like half to one and then you know some of these these faces whether it's a grass hollow or a bunker some of them are you know 10 15 20 feet deep um and so I was just blown away by the the scale of these forms. I was blown away by, you know, the just the the, the angles that they would create with these forms throughout the golf courses. I think Langford Murrow are probably one, were probably one of the best architects for par par fives. Their par fives are so well done with the angles and the different uh, ways they set up the hole and ask a golfer to hit to certain spots to have the best angle. And they they did that with those you know those steep faces, whether it was a bunker or a grass hollow. Now, so after seeing Lassoni and seeing West Bend, I started applying that to Blyfield. And Blyfield, for whatever reason, just does not have those same features. Um, there's a couple grass hollows here and there around greens that are steep like that. Not nearly the same depth, um, but they have the same kind of shapes and, and sizes. And then most interestingly, a member just found an original plan for Blyfield uh, dating back to like 1923 i think it was in the golf course at blyfield the rooting is exactly the same the way the holes lie in the land but the detailing of the golf course was completely different um their plan showed all these cool bunkers and you know set up in angles and but the golf course when it was built in 1930 had none of that it had again the holes in the exact same position on the land but those features were never put in so i i'm like just very intrigued at this point why why that didn't happen why weren't those features put in was could Blyfield have been Lawsonia um 
And then when you look at the aerial image that we have from 1930, shortly after the course opened, there was there was no fairway bunkers. There were a few fair, uh, greenside bunkers, but absolutely no fairway bunkers. The original plan showed fairway bunkers everywhere. Uh, fairway bunkers were added at a later date. I'm not sure by who. So I just don't see this you know, the strong connection. Does that mean that Langford and Monroe were not there at all? Was it somebody else implemented the work? So um, I just find it, I just find it very interesting to like to see other architects work and just to see some stuff that just was never fully implemented. Uh, Country Club of Lansing is also a Langford Moreau course. I think there's three in the state of Michigan, um, Langford Moreau. And the Country Club of Lansing has a little bit more of that, a little bit more of these grass hollows and steep faces. Um, but not like, not like Blyfield. So, you know, the work that we're doing at Blyfield, we're expanding all the greens. You can see where the green pads were. We're expanding them all out. We're picking up some great cupping locations along edges, you know, along the edges of bunkers, along the edges of the greens. Uh, you can see that fill pad, you know, where the green shape was, but the green over time, it just shrunk and came in uh, from that location. So we're picking up some really cool uh, cupping locations. We're trying to reintroduce those steep faces, uh, but you know that's that's a that's always a challenge too because you got to think about playability, like who's there today, who's playing the golf course, and then you have to think about maintainability of the golf course. Prior to this renovation, the uh, Blyfield did not own one fly mower. Um, <laughs> they they're purchasing fly mowers now because the faces are steeper. I wanted to make them maybe a little bit steeper, but um, they're still pretty steep. So there's a balance, you know, with with those things, playability, the maintenance of the golf course. And then the other thing we're trying to do at Blyfield is trying to re reestablish these angles. Uh, again, I think Langford and Merle were so good at creating angles with their bunkers, with their hollow faint, you know, faces and forms that they created. So we're really trying to reinstitute that at, at Blyfield and make the golf holes more strategic, make a golfer have to think about, you know, position from A to B, what the best route is, what the alternate routes are, you know, throughout the golf hole. Um, and that, that's the one thing that I saw at Lawsonian West Bend over and over is there was defined routes that like you knew that like this path from here to, you know, this point was the best path because of the hazards and because of what they put out there. And, but they gave you options to, you know, hit away from those hazards and play the hole in a different, different uh, manner. It may not always been the best angle, but, and I can definitely see like where die, you know, got hit some of his inspiration from Langford Moreau stuff. I've read that, that he studied their work and because, you know, think about thinking about his work, you know, a lot of his bunker faces were, could be pretty deep and mm -hmm. uh, bold, bold for faces and bold forms. And so I see it. Um, I get it uh, now as far as what, you know, Pete dies evolution, but anyways, that that's kind of like, you know, what's, what's happened at these golf courses and how these plans have evolved. Yeah. That's a great example of how it's a, a balance for, for a designer to come in. And, and I know as you referenced, you would like to make everything a little steeper, maybe draw a little more distinction in, in height on, in certain places, but you're going to, if you do that, you're going to, the club's going to run into problems, you know, at, if if that's not really what they they signed up for, you know, they probably just wanted a, uh, an improved golf course, you know, it, in the the ways that we normally think that a golf course can be improved, not a, maybe a dramatic overhaul that's going to, you know, make the golf course more punishing to them or expensive to upkeep. But you, right. you mentioned something about, you know, seeing some on the plans of Blythefield, one 
one concept and having it never got built. And that, that always goes back to uh, something you mentioned earlier about the Donald Ross courses and why they m- might have turned out so differently. I mean, I think that was a pretty common thing. And I guess it's, I'll, I'll connect this currently too, but I think that was a common thing. You know, you if architects couldn't be everywhere at once, obviously they can't. They go in, uh, present a set of plans to a club, turn it over to a contractor or associates. They may or may not have had associates. I mean, if the if Donald Ross couldn't, you know, be everywhere at once, he had associates, but he didn't have 50. And there were some years when he had 25 golf courses under construction. So those associates are also spread kind of thin. So it's a chain of command that trickles down. And at some point, you know, you are turning the plans over to, to a contractor and they're executing the vision and they may or may not be able to produce what's on the plans or if the club doesn't have the money to to pay for what's on the plans i mean i think that's why you probably have these these different products even even contemporaneously when they're being built 1930 at blythefield it's you know year one into the depression they might have ran out of money they might not have you know they might have had an intention to to build the langford moreau plans but they just they just couldn't but it goes back to this this concept of, of associates and chain of command did you ever run into problems when you were working with Arthur Hills about uh, just being one person in the hierarchy, you know, and you've got people, you know, you've got to answer to your bosses and then you're working with, with developers or a club and then you're dealing with contractors and then they're dealing with people. Did that ever get to be an issue of, of getting the plan executed the way you wanted it to? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, good, uh, good thing to like bring up or talk about, you know, so, so my time with Arthur Hills, I started with him when I was 17 years old, I was still in high school. And then when I finished, I was, I just turned 40. So it was 2010. And, um, I mean, I wasn't there, you know, through that whole period. It was part of it was in college. And then, and then the, the rest of it was after college, um, that I worked for him And that, you know, and I, and I started as just a draftsman and then worked up to project superintendent or project architect and then partner. And, um, and when I first started working for art in the eighties and the nineties, you know, he was literally in charge of everything. He, he uh, there was Keith Foster and Mike Dasher mm-hmm. and they were kind of set up regionally and, and they made a lot of site visits, but the other, the, the design associates that were in the Toledo office rarely got to make site visits in that, in that early era. I mean, art was doing it all. And then Keith and Mike were doing the other parts. And then I, I think as work, uh, as we got more work, as Eric got more work, there was really a need to have other people more involved. He just couldn't do it himself. You know, he, he, I mean, his business really exploded in that time that I was working for him. He went from just kind of a regional architect to national and was getting you know, great opportunities. And so there was you know a lot more work. And I think he saw that he had to turn, you know, some of this over to some to other guys to get it accomplished. So every project that we did, we had a three-person team. And like my projects would consist of art, myself, and then a junior associate that would work under us. And you typically do all the drawing production. Um, I would make um, all the site visits. Art would make like maybe every third visit. And then the junior associate would come along once in a while for site visits. Um, I, re- I remember in the early, early years of doing that, um, you know, art was still coming from a point where he was in control of everything to the point that he was starting to relinquish a little bit of that control. And when there was changes made that he wasn't 
you know, aware of that. That's usually what it was with art is if, if, if you didn't talk to him about it and it was a surprise when this is the case for a lot of people, he did not like those surprises. He would get, he would get pretty mad sometimes about changes that we would make or anything like that. And, uh, so I just remember like so many car rides with him, like going maybe like from the site to the airport and him, you know, I don't know, yelling at me kind of essentially like in the car and he would slam his fist <laughs> on the dash dashboard. And, you know, he, it was just so funny. And after, after it happened over and over, he just kind of laughed about it, you know, cause it was comical, but for him, he was kind of serious, but he just, he did not like surprises. And so, but as time went on, he really started relinquishing a lot of control to myself, uh, Drew Rogers, Brian Yoder, and then of course, Steve Forrest. And probably the last five, six years, you know, before we all kind of split up, we were literally running jobs and, and doing everything. And we would do our best to keep Art apprised of what was happening, you know, reviewing plans with him and things like that. But he really started putting a lot of trust in us and, and uh, to kind of carry these projects through um, as time went on. So yeah, that, that was definitely a challenging in, uh, time. And I think if you were to study our work from that period, you're probably going to see different uh, styles too. You'll see this, you know, the work that I did with my style and Drew's work and Brian's work and Steve's work. And, you know, it was all kind of a, a little bit of a, you know, our, in, our individual tastes or likes and dislikes, you'll, you'll see those in each one of those courses that we worked on. You know, it was still the Arthur Hills umbrella, but we certainly brought our own philosophies and ideas to them that were kind of married with that overall Arthur Hills look that we we're trying to create. Yeah. Did, was there anything that could have been considered a unifying vision for the Arthur Hills brand? Uh, yeah, probably like the small greens. He, he, he loved small greens. Um, I'm not sure why he, you know, he was a member at Inverness in Toledo and Toledo, the Inverness greens at Toledo were pretty small. So I think that for him was like the template and he, he loved Ross's work and most of Ross's work, you know, were smaller or smallish greens. So small greens, um, the bunkers, we typically had that grass space with a flat sand floor. Uh, we, myself, Drew, Brian, probably started flashing sand a little bit more than Art liked. He liked that dead flat floor, which you could never see the sand. So we started cambering the sand a little bit to see it. Um, so I think the bunkers, and then he he did focus on angles, um, trying to set up angles and, and challenge golfer with those angles. Uh, the way that I, the way that he explained strategy to me and the way that he saw it was different than the way I saw it though. Uh, so I'd, I'd have to kind of probably explain on paper, like what he thought it should be and versus what, what I think it should be. And, um, but I, I, I guess I saw it as like, you know, if you challenge a golfer, say down the right hand side of the hole with bunkers or a tree or whatever it would be, that should be the open shot into the green from that right hand side where, where, you know, you've challenged that side right. and you have, you have an open shot. That seems classical. Yeah, but he saw it opposite of that. He saw it, and uh, he saw that like if you went down that right side, that right side of the green should be should be protected. Um, which I, again, like everything I've read and saw, it was opposite of that. And, um, and then he was big on the angle of the green too, and he he felt like if the green was wide to left to right, it allowed a golfer you know bigger variety to miss it left to right. Um, versus like if it was length lengthwise to you. Uh, I'm not making any sense now. Um, anyways, his style, his, his philosophy was a little bit different than the, than the way I saw it as far as angles and how you protect a, a green and a hole and things like that. Uh, when you got to the point when you were c taking more of a leadership position, 
uh, in the design of these courses were you well i mean could you could you uh build in the strategies the way you saw them yeah yeah we did over time yeah definitely and um i don't think art ever fully agreed with it but he um i think it was one of those things where we were so busy and so much was going on and i think he slowly started to kind of just let us let us you know implement our ideas and our thoughts you know that's interesting you you say that uh he came through before you started working or maybe when you were kind of doing your your younger intern thing he came through atlanta and over about a five-year period built uh four or five courses here that were really well received at the time but they're all there's something that's that's very kind of awkward to me about a lot of them and it, it has to do with the size of the greens, as you mentioned, the way it relates to the scale of the holes, bunkering positioning on a lot of courses uh, here never quite made sense to me. Like you, their bunkers would be in the place where they didn't seem to serve any strategic point of view. Um, and right. a, lot of, a couple of the golf courses have been renovated now, so they've, they've changed. But hearing you say that kind of validates my impression of it, but also maybe it, it gives it more of a context. Uh, they They definitely seem of a period in time, the late 80s, early 90s period in time, where uh, a lot of times the, the the shape and function and size of features, not just with Art, Art Hills courses, but with uh, a lot of stuff that came from that area, didn't, didn't quite seem to mesh together. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, because these golf courses were associated with real estate development. So, right, you know, you're not right. getting a natural context for the golf holes either. Right, right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, and then the other thing that, you know, when we worked for Arthur Hills, the, um, he, he developed very detailed drawings or we developed very detailed drawings and art was a stickler for, you know, build it to our plan. Let us look at it, but build it to build it to our plan. And so I think when you have that, that mindset, a lot of times you're going to get just what you have on paper and then you're leaving it up to the contractor to kind of create that and, and finalize that. I mean, he definitely would look at it, but, I, I don't really have that philosophy. I, I develop detailed plans still, but to me, they're the, they're kind of like the concept or the template to get us started. And I'll use those plans for reference points as we first start. But once we get going, once it's in the dirt and it's roughed in, I, to be honest, and this is probably the case with a lot of architects, I don't really reference the plans anymore. You know, as long as I'm keeping the quantities in check for my owner and not going over budget, at that point, once it's roughed in, it's really what my eye sees and what me as a golfer, you know, tells me, you know, needs to be done as far as how it should be played or what it should look like and how it's going to, you know, influence somebody's emotions or feelings or whatever as they play that hole. Because um, to me, it, it becomes a three-dimensional thing. You know, paper is one thing. It's one-dimensional or two-dimensional. But once it's live, you know, I... I tend to rely less on the plans and really trying to make it fit in and look good. And, you know, like you said, get the scale right and the positions of things and the textures and the colors and the shadows and all those things are the things that I'm thinking about at that point and less on the plan and more on just reacting to what my eye sees and how things feel and what the experience will be for the golfer. And so that's probably why you see some of that stuff, you know, from that area is because it was just so, so strongly associated with the plan and the plan only and a little deviation from that. Um, and I and like back to the greens things, you know, I've played so many golf courses throughout my career and I think the true variety of greens is what makes some golf courses great. 
whether it's, you know, a 4,000 square foot green or a 12,000 square foot green, I think you have to have that variety throughout the experience to keep people excited and to have different, you know, different looks and different you know, types of experiences throughout that, throughout that round. Um, so I, I think green size is really important you know, as far as variety and different shapes and forms within the greens. The other thing that, you know, with small greens, uh, if you have a green that's 5,000 square feet, and today's, you know, demand is to have, you know, some clubs 11, 12, 13 on the stint meter. Well, you have to have a pretty flat green to, to maintain those green speeds. And if you have a small green, um, it's going to end up being really flat, you know, in today's world to maintain that, maintain that playability or, or that uh, expectation as far as that green speed. But if you have a green that's a little bit bigger, you can have flat areas, but then you can also have some drama or some excitement between the cup areas within the green. Um, so in my mind, like a small green really limits uh, the creativity within the green surface because you have to have flat areas to putt and you end up having to, you know, most of the green to be, to be flat. And I think, you know, greens, golf courses, golf holes become very interesting when the, when the pin can be moved throughout that green you know, when, if it's a big green, you literally can change the hole from one day to the next as far as where the pin is tucked and what angle or what way you'd want to play that hole. Um, and with small greens, you just you, you really limit those options or those you really limit the ability to, to make those changes or, or change the way the hole is played. Right. And that well, and that conversation also, as you mentioned, has to do with the desire for really fast greens and, and high green speeds, which which definitely does come with consequences does you know it, it potentially as you're saying strips the character of the greens where if we could all get on board with greens that stimp at nine or ten now you can really start building some character even into right. small greens right. just, just one one follow-up on this topic that we're talking about when you look back on this period in time you joined uh, in the mid to late 90s is when you kind of came on board full-time with with hills and you worked through basically the first decade of the 2000s much of that time was one of the the most high production eras of golf course construction i mean you arthur hills was busy and 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 everybody was was so busy building golf courses it also was the era of you know the the height of real estate development and, and residential golf courses which was a a big part of of what hills was doing at that time just when you reflect back on that period and what type of construction projects you were involved in and designing versus where we are now. Just what do you think about that, that whole transition, where we were to where we've come? Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing to think about because there was so, I mean, there was so much work. Now there's work, there's more work than there has been, but it's still not even close to what that time was like as far as the amount of work. Um, I, I guess what I think about it now is that and, and back to the very beginning of the conversation, you asked me about, you know, projects and getting new work and things like that. And we talked about, uh, you know, the relationship part. I think the other part of it is the service. Um, and I, I really focus on that. I, re, I really focus on the hands-on service. The fact that it's, that it's me, you're hiring me, you're getting me, you're not going to get an associate. Um, and so I, I feel that the service that I'm providing is so much more detailed and elaborate, better, I guess, in, in short terms, than the service that we were providing during that period. Um, 
I, I, for example, was, I normally had four golf courses under construction at one time when I worked for our, in that period, that late nineties, early two or mid two thousands. Um, so that means that I was literally on a plane almost every day of the week, flying from one job site to the next, you'd fly in, spend, you know, maybe three, four hours, and then you're back on the plane, hop into the next place. And that was like a, a regular routine, you know, each and every week. So we were doing good work. I thought we were all doing good work. Uh, the projects turned out good, but when it came to the service portion and how much time was spent on the property, there, there wasn't or enough. I feel like that's one thing that I've really tried to focus on. And what I think has made the work better is that I do focus on service and I do focus on being there um, a lot during construction and with my clients a lot in helping them manage the project, manage the dollars, manage the time, you know, to get the project completed, but also managing the aesthetic and the look. And um, you can't do that if, you, if you're not there a lot. Again, I, you know, I, I said that I developed detailed plans. I give those plans to the contractor, but I'm still out there working with the guys, working with the, you know, the person that's building the bunker, um, you know, working with them hand in hand, uh, like the course I did in Florida last year, I, along with two other of the guys from Ryan golf literally built every bunker. Now it's all in sand. It's a lot easier to build a bunker in sand than, than clay in Michigan. But we literally with the mini excavator went from one bunker, bunker to the next, you know, we'd, we'd form the bunker. I'd paint a sand line. We'd edge it. We do all the, the shaping in the bunker face or, or you know, the refinements, adjustments to the bunker face in the perimeter and we'd walk away and the, and the bunker was ready for drainage and for grass. And so I try to stay very involved to that level of detail. I'm not actually running equipment, although I started tinkering this summer a little bit with the skid steer and built a couple of bunkers so I can do it. It's not really something I want to do every day. Um, a, it's not like your back is killing you when you're done at the end of the day, sitting in that thing all day. <laughs> And, you uh, got to build up that tolerance over time. Yeah. 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 But it's fun doing it, but it's just, it's at the same time, it's not like super productive because you're sitting there working on one bunker versus if I was out, you know, walking around, we can get several bunkers done, you know, in a day if I'm working with you know, the contractor to do that. Um, so it, I guess, again, it's like the service and just so much more time spent on the property. And maybe a part of that's a function of not, you know, having the same workload as we did before. And, you know, if we did, would we go back to the same ways? I don't know. But I just like to help handcraft these golf courses and be very involved with every every aspect of what's going on. And the only way to do that is to spend a lot of time there. Like at Blyfield, I'm going there twice a week, and uh, I literally spend you know all day on property each time I go there. And uh, we, when I walk away from things, they're done, um, but they're done you know exactly you know to the liking of my eye and and the way that I want it. Well, you just talked about it you are part of kind of a, a a very small society of designers right now. Someone that has actually built in the last few years a, a new course, new construction. And you mentioned it just a minute ago. It's called Esplanade at Azario uh, at Lakewood Ranch down in Sarasota area of Florida. It is part of a development, right? It's part of a large real yes, estate yeah. development. Yep. Um, first of all, I'll ask you a couple questions. First of all, I mean, I, I thought we had killed that beast, the uh, development course. It, it has yeah. at least uh, <laughs> gone dormant for a little bit while. For a little while, uh, is is that something that we'll, we're only going to see at least in the near future in, in some place like Florida or the Sun Belt, where 
uh, a lot of homes and, and real estate is being developed. Uh, is the golf course real estate model coming back? Um, and just your best guess on that. And secondly, based based on your your career and how many how often you had done that with hills and the wide variety of courses you built across the country that were associated with real estate what can be done to make those golf courses better and i don't mean that that as a, as a slight toward your work but in general uh as an industry most of the golf courses that were built you know in the 80s 90s early 2000s that were associated with real estate are not remarkable golf courses so we right. we don't need more any more of that if we are going to do it and i say we as if i'm involved but if the if the profession is going to do that what can be done to make those courses uh worthwhile i guess right um yeah those are all like so i guess your your one of your questions was well, is that going to come back? Yeah, is, there be, a, is there an ongoing market for that, or are these yeah, just isolated developments? Yeah, I don't think so, I, Derek. I think there are they are isolated, and I think if we see them, they're just going to be down in Florida in the Sun Belt states. I've talked to developers like in Michigan. Um, you know, and there was a period of time when there were home, you know, golf developments built in Michigan, and they're like, there's just no way that it's going to work unless you're, you know, able to turn over the sale of a lot of homes on a month to month basis. You know, if you're going to do one of these projects and it's going to take you 20 years to sell up the lots, it's just never going to work. One of the reasons why it works so well down in Florida is that they're able to turn these things over in, you know, seven, eight, nine years. And like my client, Taylor Morrison, we've done three, three golf courses now and they all have this Esplanade brand and they're all, you know, typically thousand acre pieces of property, thousand units, residential units. And again, they're turning them over in seven to nine years. So the market is good right now for that in those areas. Uh, but I don't think it's going to work in the Midwest or the East coast or, or areas like that. It's just uh, a, a, you have to purchase such a large piece of property and the cost is, you know, a lot. And then you have to develop it and you have all this money that goes into it before you make any profit. And then, and then you're, you know, if you're in a market that isn't going to sell a lot of homes on a month to month basis, again, you're, you're solid on these things is 15, 20, 25 years. And that's why a lot of times you see these things start and then they, somebody else new comes in and tries to, you know, maintain it. They always say like it's a third person that owns it that makes any money. And that, and that may be reality. Um, and then, and then the interesting part about it too, is that you know, when I'm building these golf courses, designing them, I'm doing it for my client, Taylor Morrison, who's a home builder and that's their interest is selling homes lots. And once they're done, they're walking away from it and it gets turned over to the, to the people that are there. Well, I have to be mindful of the people that are going to be there. The people are going to use it. I can't, everything can't revolve around just selling lots and, and, you know, taking care of, of Taylor Morrison's needs. Cause I have to be mindful of the end user and the experience that they're going to have. And I think that's, like probably where I've taken this is, yeah, I, would I rather be doing a you know beautiful new golf course in Northern Michigan on sandy soil where there's, you know, the, the, the most amazing palette in the world versus manufacturing everything in Florida and, and then having homes that line, you know, each hole, would I rather be doing, you know, the begin uh, the, the Northern Michigan course? Yeah, absolutely. But I have an opportunity to, you know, create something from scratch, something that's brand new, um, but I really try to focus on the consumer, like who's going to be there and the type of experience that they're going to have. And I know that most of the people living there are going to be 
you know, probably in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, a lot of these people just through talking and, and learning, a lot of these people are coming down and they, a lot of them have never played golf before or they're new to the game or their wife has never played the golf game before. So the things that I've been focusing on right now, uh, and that's the other thing that I think has also helped with this new golf course development is that whole era or the era right now of doing renovation work. Um, I'm, I'm out on golf courses a lot. I watch golfers play. Um, I think it's pretty interesting to watch people play golf because it gives you a pretty good idea of, um, from an architecture perspective, what, what works, what doesn't, what's too hard, what's not too hard. Um, bottom line is there's not a lot of good golfers out there. There's, there's some good golfers, <laughs> but the majority of people that play. We, and this, we knew this that though, didn't we? Did we know that? Yeah, we did. <laughs> This summer has been a good example. Like you go out and play golf right now and there's so many new people that are playing because of COVID. Um, and I think that's awesome. Uh, but at the same time, like they really struggle, you know, like to hit it from A to B and have no idea where the ball is going to go. And No, I take your um, point to, to actually see that repeatedly over a long period of time because you're observing it is it really puts that period on that sentence. Right, right. So, you know, would it be awesome if you could design every golf course like pebble beach or augusta national or oakland hills yeah that'd be awesome but is it going to serve the masses no probably not um so you know width, width is a huge factor I, i'm adamant on the corridor widths um you know I, there were some courses that i did with art in the probably the 90s where the corridors were too narrow you we probably have all seen residential golf course communities where the where the corridors are 200 or 250 feet wide, meaning like from lot line to lot line. Um, I'm pretty much insist, and that's the way it's been with everything I've done with Taylor Morrison, that the corridors are 350 feet wide. So we have nice wide corridors. I'm not ever concerned about balls hitting homes. Uh, can it happen? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, nine out of 10 times, I think there's enough width where that's not going to happen. The other thing about getting that width is it allows me to, it allows us to create interesting, interesting golf holes or interesting architecture. You know, if we have narrow corridors, just think about it. It's hard to have any dog legs. It's hard to get much angles when you have that narrow corridor. But if I can get that width, it allows me to set up angles and, and set up risk reward and strategy and things like that. Um, uh, multiple tees, and, and this isn't anything new, but you know, I'm putting a tee in the fairway at like 3,600 yards, going all the way back to maybe 68, 6,900 yards. Again, catering to these beginners, catering to seniors that age, and as they age, I still want them to play golf. Uh, and sometimes they leave the game because there's not an afford enough tee for them. So by providing that, we can keep them in the game longer. Um, and then the rest of it just goes back to making it. You know, just because it's a residential golf course doesn't mean that it can't be beautiful it doesn't mean that it can't be interesting it doesn't mean that it can't um uh just be exciting i guess so, so that's that's the other part is i'm just really trying to create this really cool experience that has a lot of variety has all the elements of great golf course architecture but it's also beautiful and and something that people can enjoy and uh and be part of and um is it is it working i, I think it works pretty well um Again, but I don't think this is like a trend that's going to continue where this is going to happen a lot. I think there's just a few home developers, primarily in Florida, that they believe they have to have a golf course to, to um, sell lots. And that's that's why it's been done or that's why it is still being doing or is still being done. Right. I, I think just even being able to get that extra width in a golf hole that you're mentioning would 
not just be good for real estate golfers or recreational golfers, but even in the Sarasota, South Florida market, that's a point of distinction based on everything else that's been built there the last 40 years. I mean, narrow, right. narrowness is kind of a defining feature of South Florida golf. You know, there's just there's just not enough room. There's it's they, those courses can be so so unfun to play because they, right. you just get you just get punished. So yeah, if you can right. spread everything out a little bit, you bring that fun factor back. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then like with Florida, and this isn't the case everywhere, but you know the the palette that we were given for all three courses was like a lot of Florida flat. Uh, um, you know, not even like maybe a foot or two of fall over the entire property. So. You know, you have to dig a lot of lakes to create the fill source to build the golf course. That, you know, that we don't bring every square foot of soil into the golf course. That would, you know, economically would never work. So we're creating these lakes and using that to build the golf holes and the features. And that's the other thing about development golf courses is that we probably have all played in where there's water everywhere. You know, you barely miss it left or right off the tee. You're in water. Same thing around the green. And it just gets to be punitive and repetitive and, and not much fun at all. And um, so at these golf courses that I've done, we've moved a lot of soil. Um, I think that's one thing that people would see about it is that, you know, for a flat pallet to begin with, we've created some drama. We've created some earth uh, to to create forms and elevation change. Um, But I've really focused on the lakes and where the positions of the lakes are um, so that it's not the same repetitive thing over and over. Um, I've tried to push the water back where I can. Um, are there a couple of greens where the water's close? Yeah, but there's a lot of them where it's, you know, 100 feet away from the green where you have to really bad shot to get into the water. The same thing on the fairway. There's some carries over the water, but there's lots of space to hit away from the water. There's lots of holes that don't have water right off the tee or on the tee shot. Um, so that's the other thing that I really tried to focus on, or I have tried to focus on, is, is the placement of the water and not to have it too repetitive where it's just the same onerous thing over and over and over. Chris, as we kind of start to wrap this up, you mentioned something earlier that, that got my brain turning and we were talking about our greens and you mentioned how important it is for a golf course to have a variety of different greens. Uh, this was in context of, of uh, a pension for maybe just building small greens and having that be kind of a concept or a, a uniform uh, design style. Obviously, we're at the risk of uh, ruining the the evergreen concept of these podcasts. We're starting the uh, the U.S. Open at Winged Foot this week. Um, obviously, the greens at Winged Foot are its calling card. What do you what comes to mind, or what do you think when you think of Winged Foot and and that style of architecture and those greens there? Um, well, I, I've never played Winged Foot, so I, I guess I would be at a disadvantage, you know, in that regard, but. Uh, I mean, I think that the, you know, the greens there are great. That's what makes that golf course that, that golf course, my understanding is built on a pretty flat piece of property, right? Yeah. It's uh, small movements. Definitely nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a, it, the, the site itself is not what separates that golf course from anything else. Yeah. So I, I think like when you have a property like that, when it doesn't have any distinctive features that allow you to create this drama or really visual excitement that you have to do it within the greens. And I think that's what, what happened at Wingfoot. You know, that's, that what, that's what makes that golf course so great is the greens, the angles of the greens, the undulations within the greens, the premium on being in you know the right position on those greens. And, um, and that golf course is set up, you know, on strategic angles as well, where, where, you know, if you hit it to the right spot, you're rewarded, gives you the best angle or the best, line into the into the green or to the next shot and um 
So, but I, I think it goes back to like that, again, this kind of flattish piece of property trying to create something that's exciting and different and, and the greens are what, you know, carry that golf course through or what make that golf course so special. I was trying to think if there's been a, a golf course, just keep it to the United States or North America, but if there's been a golf course in the last 30 or 40 years that has a set of greens, anything like the greens at winged foot, even the East court, the East or West, but we're going to see the West course this week. I mean, they're so, yeah. they're so, they're, they're altars, you know, they're built up, they're massive. They have so much character and movement to them. And I, I couldn't, I just can't think of anything that, that is even approximate to that. That's been coming, that's come out of the modern era. And I'm wondering like, could you even build greens like that today? I mean, is, or they be too audacious or what, what would the circumstances be where you could really execute 18 green complexes that, that, that sit there like these giant pieces of elevated sculpture? I mean, you'd probably have to have the right client that would, you know, that saw that or, or wanted that. And, um, yeah. Would you be able to do that in today's world and have that much undulation? And yeah, I, I don't know. It would, you'd have to really understand like who your user is and, and who's going to use it. You know, and, cre- and create that for them. If it was just for the masses, it probably would never work, and the thing would probably be in financial trouble uh, within a short period of time. You know, because of that. I, that like that's one thing I've read about Langford Moreau is that a lot of their work was dismissed or changed, or because of the, some of those features were too bold, they were too you know too steep or too deep, and um, which is kind of sad because that's what makes it interesting. But a lot of it was just regarded as being too difficult or not, not maintainable. And that's, there's such a fine line in architecture between what's really interesting and, and cool and can challenge a really good golfer. And then, you know, what's fair and playable and what's sustainable and what, and what can make money. And um, there's all these iconic golf courses that we always look to and think that are amazing and they are, but it's really a small fraction of the golf industry or, or the golfing population you know, if there's 16,000 golf courses in the United States, you know, these ones that we always revere is great and they are great. You know, it's really a small handful or a small collection versus the mass of all the golf courses that are out there. And if there's anything that I think, um, I guess to leave this podcast with is just trying to make sure that whatever we design is, is right fitted for the client and the budget and, and who the end user is going to be and, uh, and whatever that would be you know, as far as that style or that architecture. But to me that it has to be married together. Yes. Just think of that. Even that concept of marriage, it's, you know, there, there have been great sets of greens built, but most, most of the greatness that we've seen in the last, you know, 20 years or so is, is site related. The, you know, these great sandy sites with great movement and the greens can have a lot of undulations, but they, they tie into the dunes or they're, they're, they're a part of the landscape. They're not a, a piece of art, unto themselves that was like purposefully created the way winged foot screens are uh, right let me ask you this i, I th- got on sort of a, a little discussion on twitter a, a while ago it's been a while but would you rather have uh either as a designer would you rather designer just as a player would you rather play a golf course that and you can maybe take winged foot as an example something like that where what t to green you know, it's it's a matter of just placing the ball, but it's it's fairly. It, there's nothing that's uncommon about it. But then you get to the greens, and the green surrounds, and, and you have incredibly 
complex, interesting, charismatic greens with all kind of movement and character, and that's when the golf starts. Or would you rather play or design a golf course where off the tee, you're having multiple decisions, lines of attack, playing to angles, but then you get to the greens and they're kind of docile and, and fairly fairly regular. Uh, they, they don't hmm. tax you in the same way. Uh, what, what do you prefer? Interesting. Um, Obviously, the great the greatest courses have elements of both. There's, it's not either yeah, or, but... Right, right. I don't know. Like, uh, sitting here today, if you said you have to make a decision, I would probably say the latter. Like, not that I want dull greens and flat greens, but, um, you know, we, we spend, you know, almost 50% of our strokes, you know, to par is on the green, but we spend a pretty short amount of time on the green, you know, given the entire hole, as far as how long it takes to play the hole. So I, I still feel, I guess, as we see here today that I'd, I'd want it to be interesting off the tee and set up all those angles and make the golfer think, you know, if I had to, if you had to sacrifice one thing or the other, I would probably say the greens would be that thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that I would, want again flat greens and uninteresting greens i just think that if it's dull up to the green then it's probably gonna you know leave you with a not not a great experience but if it's exciting up to the green and the greens are pretty good i think people are going to remember you know a, a lot more of that uh of that golf course right right well what is the uh what's the best or your favorite golf course that's been made in the modern era Oh, best the modern era. Mm. Uh, trying to think here. Played so many older golf courses over the years. I'm trying to think of like new stuff that I've played. Yeah, I know this. Um, this question is entirely designed to get people from saying something from the golden age. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I would say like. I mean, I've, I've played a couple of the courses at stream song. So I'd say that like that kind of stuff. Uh, like, I don't want to say everything that Corin Crenshaw and Doak's done and Gil Hans has done, but that work or that kind of look of the work. And again, it's like these sandy sites that, and I think they do move some earth when they need to, but they make it fit in and look so good. But I would say probably, I'm just trying to think of other courses that I've played that are newer, that, but I'd say like the stream strong stream song. And then the stuff at Bandon, everything at Bandon has probably been the most impressive to me, like in the modern era. Um, and it's, and it comes back to just eliciting all these emotions and feelings, you know, while you're on the golf course, whether it's the beauty or the smell of the ocean or trees or, you know, the way things look and how natural they fit in and just the excitement, how bold and the scale, they do such a great job with the scale of the space and, and, and you know, just creating this amazing experience. So I'd say the golf courses like at Bannon or, or Streamsong are the ones that I've been most impressed with in the modern era. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that I continue to play seems to be older, older golf courses. <laughs> right. Would that be your dream project? Getting a, a sandy yeah. coastal yeah. site or... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in Michigan, um, somewhere would be would be awesome. Uh, I say Michigan because it's my home state, and I would love to do something here. But I would, I would take I would take that you know that type of site anywhere to to do that. Money and and client notwithstanding, is are there still opportunities like that in Michigan? I'm not sure how how built out it is or how possible that is. Is it is it something that in theory could come to existence? Maybe if you could find the you know, right piece of property where you could, you know, where you could develop it. I think in um, today's 
uh, world, it's, it's really difficult with all the environmental things and things like that to build something that would be that close to the water. Uh, but you could probably do it. It just seems like it would take a long time to get the approvals to do that. Um, I think there's parts of Michigan that you could, you could do that. And I do think that, you know, with golf, if golf continues to grow, you know, and if, if the numbers stay like they are, I think there will be a need to build some new golf courses at some point. There's been so many golf courses that have closed and there's so many uninteresting golf courses out there. There hasn't been like in Michigan, there's been a couple of new golf courses, but there hasn't been anything built like new in the Detroit area. Probably, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years. So I think at some point there is going to be demand. I think it's always fun to have something new and exciting. Um, but I, I do, I do see that, you know, as things continue, there will be a need for, you know, some new golf courses here and there in the right markets. Um, but it would be really cool to find like, like say up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, like on the South coast of the upper peninsula along Lake Michigan, there's all these like really cool sandy dune areas and there's dunes all the way up and down the Lake Michigan on the West coast of Michigan. But there's these cool sand dunes on the upper peninsula. Like if you found something like that, that was on the water, that had you know views of Lake Michigan that had, all this awesome palette to build into, you know, could you draw people up there and make it a destination and make it great? Yeah, I think so. I think it, it was really special. And then like, if you did the Kaiser thing where you put, you know, put a couple courses in to draw people to keep them there longer then it, it probably would work. Chris Wilzinski began his career in one era of design and now finds himself working in quite another. I'm not sure where the cutoff line is, but it had to come not long after Chris joined Art Hills. He most likely was among the last wave of designers hired into the world of large architectural firms, production houses, where associates oversaw numerous projects at once under the banner of the man at the top. Of course, now he works, as you heard, out of his own office, independent, he's hands-on, a one-man show, who offers clients a more specialized level of service. Boutique, I believe, is the word. Uh, Something Chris spoke about that also gets to the heart of what's different now versus the 1990s is the space that modern designers strive for. Corridors in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and that's the side-to-side breadth of the hole, was usually around 250 feet. It seems like a lot when you hear that number, but it was really quite narrow. So today, whether at a new course or even at a restoration or renovation through tree removal, designers want to push those edges out to 300, 350 feet or even more just to create more playing space, to open up the landscape and the views, and also for safety, of course. It's one reason the courses and remodels of the last 20 years are usually more fun and forgiving to play. And they also look more natural the way they sit on the land. And that's one of the benefits of of the modern era, I guess, the last 20 years, is the the striving for more space has just made golf holes look less enclosed and less claustrophobic. There's definitely a strong correlation between the slowdown of new construction and the rise of this contemporary period we're in now of excellence and restoration. Obviously, designers had to start looking for work where they could get it, but there's no doubt that the profession's best talent right now has flooded into the boutique and remodel market. That's certainly true of Chris Wilzinski. The clubs that he works for, and all of us golfers as well, are the beneficiaries. So thanks to Chris for joining the podcast and sharing all that. Please remember to go to feedtheball.com and explore the back catalog of older podcasts going back to 2017. If you enjoy Feed the Ball, you can help promote and expand the listenership. If you go to your preferred podcast provider and subscribe to the show, hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and a rating while you're there as well. I want to thank those of you who have already done that and contributed feedback. 
You can also find my writing in each issue of Golf Digest, including a column I write on architecture called Of Course, covering various pertinent topics in design. The upcoming issue, I discuss the marriage of green speeds and green contour. The inspiration for that, of course, was heading into November. The next major will be the Masters, and that is the heart and soul of that golf course, is the green and those green complexes. So we, I break that down a little bit in the next issue of Golf Digest. I'm also on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at FeedTheBall. That'll wrap it up for now. I want to thank you all for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. <laughs>